This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Jabari Asim and CIIS's Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, Denise Boston, in conversation about his new book, which explores a different side of American history, one that doesn't depend on a narrative steeped in oppression, but rather reveals African-American voices telling their own stories. This event was recorded on November 1st, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. That's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. It was great talking with you backstage. Yeah. Icebreakers. Now we know each other. We're now old, we know we're each old other. friends. We're so. cool. We're cool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome, everyone. We're really happy to see you. We first had a sound check. It was like two or three of you sitting here. <laughs> and to walk out to see all these faces, it's so beautiful. So thank you. And welcome to CIIS, California Institute of Integral Studies. Got to say it really slow. It's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. Yeah. But welcome to the Bay Area. Thank you. And I know you arrived last night. And mm-hmm. how did it feel as you uh, took on the day here today? I'm still kind of absorbing. You know, I wish that I could stay longer. So I'm full of, full of remorse. But um, typically you go, when you do things like this, you go in and out of cities. And people always say, oh, you were, you were in Salt Lake City. What was that like? And I'm like, I wish I could tell you. You know, because I, I landed at the airport. They drove me to the hotel. Yes. And they drove me to the event. Then they drove me back to the wow. airport. You know, so it's a lot of that. Yeah. You um, were in L.A. last night? Yes. I was, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'll be in Seattle tomorrow. Wow. So, well, uh, we want to keep yeah. you present for a moment. All right. Happy to be Thank here you. in this space. Well, um, I'm not sure if everybody knows of your work and the power of this wonderful little book. It's just so beautiful. And I thought we would start the evening by having you read so sure. that you can introduce yeah. your, your writing. Yes. Uh, this particular book, if you're not familiar with it, it's eight essays. And um, they're all on different subjects, but they're overlapping in terms of my interest um, at this particular point in time. I was thinking a lot about a few things. One was the experience of living in a dark body. Secondly, living in a dark body in spaces where dark bodies aren't necessarily commonly seen. Um, I wanted to uh, reflect on that. And also um, the phenomenon of the dark body moving, moving through space, uh, inhabiting metaphorical space. Uh, so, so a couple of different manifestations of space. Yes. Um, and there are eight Essays. I guess the other uh, primary thing that I that I discuss in the book is something that I call narrative combat, uh, which is about the clash of stories. You know, several years ago, Samuel Huntington had a book where he talked about the clash of civilizations, uh, in which he he described what we might call uh, culture wars in very stark terms. And I tend to see it more as a clash of stories. Um, who gets to tell the story? And in certain manifestations of of narrative combat. Um, the oppressors get in between the oppressed and their stories. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things that I'm looking at is those kinds of tangled relationships, right? Uh, so, like I say, there are eight essays, and I, I thought I'd spend maybe five minutes um, reading from a couple of them just to kind of give you a taste of, of what's going on here. Um, and so this first little snippet uh, is pretty short. It's from an essay I have called Getting It Twisted. Um, It's time to replace the timid discourse of pragmatic centrism with the aggressive language our situation requires. Unlike Barack Obama, who spent both terms of his presidency hamstrung by conventional notions of propriety and understandably wary of coming off as an angry black man, the rest of us have license to speak freely and speak out. 
It is a very grave question as to whether or not the slavery and degradation of Negroes in America has not been unnecessarily prolonged by the submission to evil, W.B. Du Bois once observed. Replace the archaic-sounding evil with blatant corruption. And the question, the question applies not just to black people, but also to any American who's not a member of the gilded 1%. As I watched the 45th president and his lackeys attack the tender flesh of opponents with claws fully extended and fangs dripping saliva, I can't help thinking of Benjamin Franklin's words to his sister Jane. If you make yourself a sheep, he wrote, the wolves will eat you. Okay, and this is from... Uh, an essay called The Thing Itself, uh, which is mostly about uh, current debates about cultural appropriation. By black ethos, I mean the distilled experience of black life and all its myriad subtleties, a just grew stew of sights, sounds, memories, movements, and emotions, marinated in blues, swing, bop, soul, funk, gospel, and rap. A deep blue blackness beyond category and bread in the bone. So high you can't get over it. So wide you can't get around it. So low you can't get under it. So insurmountable it would seem that merely attempting to define it inevitably diminishes it. The fact that blackness can incorporate such things as technique, practice, and the conscious application of style while simultaneously transcending all, all those things makes it nearly impossible to pin down. As a result, it often infuses American life as more of a tantalizing abstraction than a concrete attribute. Some intangible quality derived from black people's history, not on this continent, but on this planet. Anyone who's seen the Norfolk State Marching Band, a New Orleans second line, or three black girls turning double Dutch knows what I mean. Ralph Ellison touched on it when he described singer Jimmy Rushing's ability to give voice to something which was very affirming of Negro life, feelings which you really couldn't put into words. When trying to wrap my vocabulary around blackness, I find myself reduced to opaque mumblings. I want to say that I may not be able to describe exactly what blackness is, but I know it when I see it, or hear it, or feel its irrepressible rhythm urging me to get on my good foot and dance my way out of my constrictions. Blackness as a timeless, undeniable force simmers at the heart of every African-American story and, by extension, nearly every American saga. However, its tendency to elude description complicates our claims of ownership. Okay, and finally, let's see. This is also from... The thing itself. Jesus, they say, rose after three days. Emmett Till did too. After his abductors tortured and killed him, they tied a 70-pound cotton gin fan around what was left of his neck. Wanting no one to know how much he'd suffered for the sins of his nation, they tossed his remains into the Tallahatchie River. No doubt his were not the only bones there. Find any ground where black people toiled in the Jim Crow South. Any body of water that bore witness to their labors. Sift the soil, dredge the depths, and you are bound to find some bones. Consecrate those bones, the poet Henry Dumas had urged. Dumas, black barred, son of the rural South, envisioned the bones, big bones and little bones, parts of bones, chips, tidbits, skulls, fingers, and everything, hauled up and handled like babies are something precious. But most of those bones are stuck in the earth, working their way deeper into time, not Emmett's. They still had flesh upon them, and they rose to the surface where things done in the dark are brought to light. Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, would not allow a closed casket after the body was brought to the north. What's more, she permitted a photographer from Jet Magazine to photograph the corpse. Anyone who's seen the resulting image is likely to remember it. It may not hit you at first, 
you might think you're looking at a geological survey, a star chart chunk of meteor, or a satellite image of a distant planet. But then you notice a hint of nostrils, a trace of lips perched illogically atop the ruin. Or you see a photograph of Emmett helpfully juxtaposed, see him in the robust beauty of youth, the softness still apparent on the face of the boy becoming a man. Adulthood was right around the corner, but Emmett never got there. Mamie Till wanted us to know why he didn't. Thank you. You can clap. Yeah. <laughs> but I know the, the silence. Yes. I understand the silence. Ooh. Because a lot of folks, a lot of our young people don't know the story of Emmett Till. Right, right. Or Mamie. Yes. Who yes. lived her whole life telling her the story. Yes. Until she died. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. sure. those two? Uh, yeah, 1955 in Money, Mississippi. Uh, Emmett Till was visiting his relatives. He lived in Chicago, uh, where cultural values were somewhat different. Um, not extremely different, but somewhat different. Um, and so he was outside of a, a tiny little store in Money, Mississippi, with um, a cousin and a friend. And um, the shopkeeper of the store was a woman named Carolyn Bryant. And Carolyn Bryant said that Emmett Till, who was 14 years old, had whistled at her and called her baby. Uh, so that night, her husband uh, and one of his relatives went to the shack where Emmett Till was staying with his, his uncle Mose and his cousins, took him out and uh, lynched him several different ways um, while in the process of torturing him. Um, and as I say, they tied a 70-pound cotton gin fan uh, to what was left of him and put his body in the Tallahatchie River, but it rose after three days it was discovered. Um, and one of the remarkable things about it, uh, about the trial, is that there actually was a trial uh, for the two men. Uh, it lasted less than an hour. Uh, but the other significant thing was that Uncle Mose stood up and pointed out the two men who had done it, uh, which was also historic. It was black people couldn't testify against white people in court. Um, other significant things about it, we knew about the incident because of the photograph that was in Jet Magazine. Jet Magazine was then, uh, by far, had the largest circulation of any African-American magazine in the country. So The many, little baby little magazine. Little, it was a little tiny, mm -hmm. undersized magazine. Um, but that picture took up the whole front. It's an extraordinary picture. I, I remember seeing it as a child not knowing what I was looking at, not realizing it, that it was the body of a, of a boy. Uh, his, his funeral drew people from... You know, all over, all over the country, uh, and I know, uh, I know a number of men who were fourteen-year-old boys in 1955 in Chicago, and every one of them says their parents took them and made them look at the body. Uh, you know, as part of their their education. Uh, the other really significant thing about it is that uh, last year it was reported uh, that Carolyn Bryant, who is still alive, finally confessed that she had lied, that she had made up the story. Just imagine her living with that all her life. And yeah. yeah. And her, her husband actually gave an interview to um, Look Magazine um, immediately afterward, in which he bragged, he boasted, and gave every detail of the process in which he uh, murdered and dismembered this child. Uh, and he was paid for it. So. So you inserted that story in that chapter. Did it come to you immediately or as you were writing, it just? Uh, well, it's, it's actually in, in two different essays. In one of the essays, I compare um, his death to the galvanizing effect of Trayvon Martin's death, which um, you know, was not in, in uh, Jet Magazine, but was in social media and became that politicizing moment for an entire new generation of African-Americans, and also how it struck African-Americans who can remember Emmett Till from That's 1955. Right. So it kind of compounds the horror of the black body being in the wrong space and the inhabitant of that body paying with his life. Uh, in that particular chapter, I'm actually discussing uh, Dana Schutz's painting, Open Casket, 
uh, of Emmett Till. And in that, um, what what happened? If you're not familiar with that, Dana Schutz is a um, is a white woman painter. She's in her 40s. She's a celebrated, very successful painter, and she painted a portrait of Emmett Till in his casket called "Open Casket." And um, the younger generation of African American artists um, reacted with considerable anger. Um, one uh, black male artist named Parker Bright, when the painting went on exhibit, actually stood in front of the painting all day to block people from seeing the painting. And I actually have a contrary point of view, perhaps because I'm, I'm, I'm not so young. Um, I, I'm against censorship. And I actually, as a human being, want to have the right to judge that painting for myself. I don't want you to tell me, I saw the painting, you don't need to see it. I actually want to be able to see it for myself. Um, and what I do is I, I compare it to a similar portrait uh, that's in the um, Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture by the great African American painter David Driscoll, uh, who also painted Emmett Till. Um, and I actually like Dana Schutz's painting. I don't think she's appropriating culture. I don't think she's profiting from black pain. The painting is not available for sale. And I think if you subjected it to a blind test, I showed you the painting and said a black woman painted it. I don't think some people would have the same objections. Uh, what I do regret about it is that it obscured a tradition of African-American painters who have used their talent to comment on Emmett Till's murder through the years. So identify some of those black women painters and discuss their work as well. But again, that's not Dana Schutz's fault. And she did say she was responding to the fact that she grew up not knowing about Emmett Till. And I think an artist has an, has an, has an um, I think artists should be given the leeway to respond to things. And then we, as an audience, can, can judge the work and say, well, it didn't work for me. Or I thought it was brilliant, right? So, but I think we're in a moment where uh, we're very sensitive to other cultures appropriating what we perceive to be uh, pain that we own, or painful moments. And, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I, under, I totally understand that. Uh, but as an artist myself, the last thing I want is for someone to see the work that I've created and say, you know, I looked at it so you don't have to, and you shouldn't. You know, I really want the audience to judge my work on its own merits. And if they dismiss it, so be it. But it's speaking for itself, as it were. Well, thank you for um, letting us know, you know, where you sit with that. Yeah. Because that's, we banty around this whole thing about appropriation. Um, I think it deserves a real good conversation because there's a context to it. And I think that situationally, it's a narrative of, you know, in situations. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're an artist, you have to be really candid. And so one of the things I say is, um, you know, I borrow, I borrow so liberally from everyone I've read. Right. And if you're a careful reader, my influences are painfully obvious. You will see them. Right. And so it would be very disingenuous of me to say I'm such an original voice. Right. When I worship at the shrine of W.B. Du Bois and anyone who reads me will know that <laughs> Ralph Ellison's all over these pages. Yes. Right. So the difference, of course, is that I'm of the culture. Right. I'm not I'm not a white person writing like W.B. Du Bois. So I, I get that. I get those distinctions. But at the same time, I think we have to really tiptoe around this notion of originality because we're often flattering ourselves. Right. That you've never read or encountered anything like this before in your life. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's B.S. I mean, I wish that were true. Yeah. I wish that were true, but it's not. Yeah. What do you you write a lot? And so uh, do you love the essay? kind of genre do you I know you said you're writing children's books um, is it from the lens of your experience that you're writing of course well sure um, I mean usually I simplify it a lot I say I, I, the perspectives that I write from are as a husband because I've been a husband for so long um, as a father because I've been a father for so long and I've, I've been a son all my life so those tend to be the perspectives uh, and, and of course all of this is filtered uh, through the experiences of inhabiting a dark body uh, which, you know, sometimes it's a matter of conscious choice to address that experience, but a lot of times that is imposed upon me, and I feel uh, almost forced, uh, you know, to express express and comment on that experience for the benefit of other people, people who's, who can read it and say, hey, that's my experience too. I'm also in a dark body, right? But also for people who don't inhabit want to say, uh, I hope I hope that they get something of value from it, something that's uh, informative. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think for me, the essay that really stood out for me is the elements of strut. Yeah, 
I love the idea of how you take a, a look at how we walk. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking of, of uh, Barack Obama's walk. Yeah. Right. People yes. always said he had a strut. Yes. You know, yeah. in the White House, we saw yeah. this brother strutting. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. And so when we strut, all the different ways that we strut. Can you talk about uh, that that particular essay? Yeah. I mean, so uh, I guess I, can, I stumbled upon strut as a metaphor for for the black experience because I was looking for something different. I said, I want to tell this story differently. Right. I want to see it a way that I haven't seen it before. Uh, and I've read some pretty good essays about walking as a black person. I really like them and respect them, but I hadn't seen one quite like this. Right. Uh, so I wanted to do that. Um, and so I'm looking again, the movement of the black body through actual physical space, but I also want to draw a connection between that movement and our movement through historical space. Right. Which is something I'm trying to So I, I think in terms of the different genres, one of the things I'm trying to do when I am writing essays is to identify patterns in the culture that may not be readily apparent necessarily, uh, and also to draw connections between disparate disparate things or seemingly disparate things, right? So uh, one of the things when I talk about the strut is I say in the essay, I imagine a crimson thread originating in Africa uh, of a boy who's um, attached to a slave coffle being yanked to a ship. Right. And then I, I trace that to the States. I trace it to the swollen ankles of a, a black matron, you know, a black church matron uh, making the march from Selma to Montgomery. I trace it to uh, Barack and Michelle Obama walking down Fence, Pennsylvania Avenue to claim the White House, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by motion, fascinated by the ways in which the black body responds in a way that may be different from other cultures. Right. And I want to trace that. And my task is to describe that in a way that clarifies it. Mm. Yeah, I loved uh, because it resonated with me how we walk. You know, can you walk with pride in a body that is brown? You know, how do you walk when you are seen in a store? Somebody thinks that you're stealing something is that right. walk changes when you are trying not to be too um, noticeable. You know, mm-hmm. so all of our walks det- determine how we're living in the world. Right. And we may walk differently in different spaces. Exactly. Depending on, on, on where we are. Uh, so when I, when I look at the historical march of progress for African-Americans, I, I argue that it's often two steps forward, one step back. Right. So that's a hitch in the strut. Right. So there's, there's a lot of different ways of and the existential question for us is how can we strut in a strange land? Right. And so I want to look at various ways in which we've attempted to do that. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite essay? Uh, Usually it's the one I had just finished. (laughs) I would holler to my wife, I finished one. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Right. Uh, But no, I I think uh, probably for me, it's it's the elements of strut, uh, which um, it's eight essays. I wrote six essays, new essays for the book. Two of the essays previously existed and had been published before. Uh, one was uh, Shooting Negroes, and the other one was Color Him Father. So of the new essays, the first one I wrote was, I take it back, it was the second one, was The Elements of Strut. And I, I, I really it's like po- that Because it's poetic, it's lyrical, it's metaphorical, historical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk about... Uh, right after emancipation and black people doing things like the juba and the cakewalk. And I call it dipping and wheeling and risking delight. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So when did you start writing? You mean period? Period. Like, oh, <laughs> um, I, I got, I got this question. I feel like I, I did a radio interview earlier today and I feel like she asked me that question. Um, so there's, there's two answers. One was first grade. I think when I, Probably knew it, but I resisted it most of my life. Uh, well, not most of my life, most of my young life, right? Because? Um, African-American community, certain expectations. I was identified really early as, as someone who had intellectual abilities. So it was like medicine, law, engineering, right? So I, I went to college uh, and was in a political science pre-law program. And then something happened. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks came to my campus. If you don't know Gwendolyn Brooks, first African-American, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, 1950. She came to my campus uh, early 1980s. She came there as a part of a three-day residency sponsored by the Women's Studies Residential College, of which I was not a member, right? 
Uh, but for some reason, I mean, I had read some of her work, and I, I guess it was speaking to me. I don't know. Uh, continues to resonate with me. And I decided to to show up. And so the Women's Studies Residential College consisted pretty much of maybe two, three dozen young white feminist scholars, you know, 18, 19 years old. Uh, and so there I was sitting in the middle of them, dark body in an unusual <laughs> space. Right? They're kind of looking at me. They don't really say anything to me. Like, Why is he here? Who is he? You know, and I ignored them. Right. I was just like, I'm, I'm in this space. Right. Um, and, um, and Gwendolyn Brooks spoke, she read, she did different things. Uh, and so I, I began to transform in my seat. Right. I was having, uh, sort of a spiritual conversion. Right. So, what happened was um, I skipped all of my classes for three days. And wherever Gwendolyn Brooks was, so was I. <laughs> right? So she'd look up from the podium and <laughs> there I am, you know. It was great. It was great. It was great. Because she was, you know, she saw me and she kind of acknowledged did me. Did you ever go up and introduce yourself? I did. Oh, I did. Uh, and I, I pressed some work on her, you know, some <laughs> terrible poems. <laughs> She actually wrote me a week later saying, keep, keep trying, young man. You know, it was great. Oh, wow. So, but at, at the end of her three days, I called my mother, you know, and I've told this story a million times. So I, I apologize if anyone in the audience has heard it before. But I called my mother um, um, and I said, uh, Mom, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. And it was this long pause on the phone. And finally she said, that's okay, baby. Medicine is a perfectly respectable profession. <laughs> it was like... This is going to be an uphill thing, uh, you know, but, that, but I began to write in serious, you know, in, in a serious way that moment. I began to take it real seriously. Wow. Yeah. And what was the first thing that you kind of published? Uh, it was a poem that I wrote when I was 22 years old. Uh, it was published some years later when I was, I think I was 24 when it was published. Um, I had uh, come under the thrall of an African-American poet named Henry Dumas. Um, uh, my friend Michael War is in the audience. I know he knows Dumas's work. Uh, just great, great uh, poet. Uh, died in 1968. Uh, he was shot by the police when he was uh, 33, almost 34 years old. Uh, he was running for a, a train, subway train in New York, and he was shot to death. Uh, and just an absolute genius. And he left behind this body of work that was amazing. Um, really influenced me a lot. So um, long story short, there was a band in Chicago uh, called Art Ensemble of Chicago. One of the saxophone players, Joseph Jarman, had a solo album called Paladins. On the back of the album was a poem by Henry Dumas called Black Paladins. And so my poem is a response to that poem. And it was published in a magazine called Black American Literature Forum, uh, which is now called African American Review. But uh, it was published, like I say, I think I was 24. That was, that was my entry into the world of, of published work. I think of when I was reading your essays, I was thinking of uh, James Baldwin, mm -hmm. and he was such an essayist as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, what was your relationship to his work? Did you? Did you? You know? Uh, was I'm, he? I, I'm an admirer of, of his work. He's not uh, an influence of mine in the way that uh, some other people are. Like like Ralph Ellison is a, is a much as an essayist. His books up Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory. Speak to me and my personality, I think. Um, Baldwin um, you know, was a boy preacher, and a lot of his uh, essays are really just very lyrical sermons, right, and, and beautifully done. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a drier kind of presenter. Uh, <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I'm a different kind of intellectual. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go, uh, church, don't think you hear me, church. And people usually don't interrupt me and go, teach. Wow. <laughs> I don't usually get that. Right? So, uh, it's a little more, a little more professorial, I think. But um, but I think the courage that he yeah. had to move in and out of different yes. genres of writing. Oh, I mean, he's a, he's, reminded his, his me. Genius is beyond dispute. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, but in terms of me writing in different genres, I really get that from Langston Hughes, uh, who wrote you know he wrote children's books, he wrote poems, he wrote plays, uh, and I, I did kind of model my approach when I first began to write. And um, I did say, essentially, I'm going to write in every genre, and the ones that stick are the ones I'm going to pursue. 
right? Um, and so I, I had begun to get poetry published. And then a weird thing happened. Uh, I sold um, a newspaper article to a newspaper. Uh, this was like 1987 or something like that. I sold it for $35. Uh, I was very pleased. And and up to that point, my poems had be- begun to get published in journals and payment was contributors' copies, right? You get some contributors. And I was very proud of those. But this newspaper article, I got $35. And I had never considered journalism before then. But I was like, contributors' copies, $35. Contributors co- so... I said, let me go out and find some more stories. So I sold that story to um, a black weekly newspaper in St. Louis where I was living. It was one of the three wealthiest black newspapers in the country at the time. It still is. It's called the St. Louis American. And it was owned by a man named Dr. Donald Suggs, who was a very prosperous oral surgeon, uh, but had wanted to be a newspaper man. But I guess his father had encouraged him, you know, get a, you know, get a real education, get a lucrative job. So, so he bought a newspaper. And he poured all this money into it, right? So he had this thriving medical practice, but he had this newspaper. And so I uh, got a part-time job there filing photos. And that's when I sold the article for $35. And he had never noticed me or paid any attention to me. Probably shouldn't have. But he stopped by when I was uh, filing the photos. He said, young man, did you write this story? And I said, yes. You know, and he said, well, come in here and talk to me. And he asked me a few questions. And he said, how would you like to do this full time? You know, and I said, well... I- I guess, maybe. (laughs) So that was my first full-time job as a writer. He basically gave me two pages in the art section. He said, your job is to fill these every week, go out, find stories, do whatever you want. Uh, And that was my start. Do you feel you've been very fortunate? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) No question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how does that make you feel when you are talking to students? Because you're teaching as well. Yeah. Um, how do you talk about your life and, and what you did to, to gain all the, the, the wonderful experiences that you've had? What do you say to young people? I emphasize humility uh, because I was fortunate at every step that people, especially African-American people who were already established, always helped me. And I think part of it was because I approached them with respect, right? I didn't approach them with swagger. The first time I did it, I approached with swag, and that was a great lesson in my life. Uh, one of my mentors was Leon Forrest, who was a great African-American novelist who taught at my college. And uh, he, was, he was the kind of professor who just gave and gave and was always present, right? And so I would see him in things, and I would say, Professor Forrest, I'm a poet. One day I'm going to stop by your office, and I'm going to show you my work because I'm, I'm so good, right? And he'd be like, okay, son, sure, come by, come by. Yeah. So one day I came by, right? And I, 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 uh, I swaggered. Right. I strutted. You strut. Right. Yeah. And I, and I almost like slapped my poems on his desk. Right. And I was like, OK, prof, you know, I'm giving you a treat. Right. And uh, and what I expected was I, I expected him to to almost be threatened by my presence. Like mm, this new generation. Wow. I'm going to have to tighten up my act. I thought I was a writer, but this kid, he's the future of writing. Right. And so, you know, he, he, he looked at him and, you know, he looked at him. It, it was just long silences. It was awkward. I'm standing there. Takes off his glasses and cleans them. Just a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> and finally he says, uh, son, go over to that bookcase, right? So I go over to the bookcase and uh, he directs me to a particular book. And he says, pull that book off the shelf. And he opened it up. And it was Haiku by Richard Wright. And Richard Wright has this wonderful haiku about a, a, a snowflake landing on a black boy's palm. It's three lines. And in those three lines, I kind of sensed all the planets turning, right? It was just like remarkable. And I knew that I had never come close to anything in all of my frantic scribbling that approximated three lines, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, right? And so I had been like 6'2 when I walked into his office. So about this point, I'm now about 5'4", right? <laughs> And I'm looking at it, and I kind of—it's kind of awkward. I didn't know what to do. You know, I'm looking at it. I don't even want to look at him. And finally, he says, "So, son, do you see?" And I said, "Yes, sir." <laughs> <laughs> it was a great lesson for me. You know? So he kind of sat down. And he said, "Well, you know, these are things you can work on. Let's look at these poems and come back when you have more." And that became my my tutelage. But it was so influential that I learned then. You know, I'm part of a grand and extensive tradition. And I'm I'm lucky to be in it at all. And what he modeled was a, a generous spirit. Yes, 
Yes. Because he could have said something else. He could have. He could have broken me. That's right. Right. Um, I read an interview with uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell. I don't know if you're familiar with her fiction writer. She was a National Book Award finalist a few years ago. So she's, she's uh, her book was uh, American Salvage. And she said when she was a freshman in a creative writing course, the professor stopped at her desk when he was handing out the work and he said, young lady, you represent everything that's wrong with American writing today. And she was 18 years old, you know? So um, Professor Forrest could have said something like that to me and he didn't. Instead, he gave me homework. Read this, 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 and this. When you've read it, come back. We'll talk about it. We'll take it apart. You know, and he had me read like Gene Toomer, Richard Wright, just a lot of important writers that in my swagger I had somehow missed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So did you would you call your work political activism? What would you, what do you how would you describe your writing? Because you are unapologetically talking about African Americans and the narratives and the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you situate yourself? Um, I, I actually, there's a, there's a, a poem by uh, the poet Mary Oliver, who's not African-American. You may know her. It's called Instructions for Living a Life. Um, I actually borrow from that poem because it, it really is instructions for writing, I think. Um, she says, uh, pay attention, be astonished, tell the world about it. And that's essentially what I try to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Wish I had come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to give credit where it's due. It's Mary Oliver. I love it, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know we're all sitting here. Next week is coming upon us. But not unlike any other week in our lives living in this country. It's not a phenomenon that we haven't experienced before. But um, I'm sure I can't leave you tonight without you talking about... Uh, the vitriol in the world and how is that impacting your writing, your senses, your, your, your body and how you're walking in the world? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I look at a lot in the body is the way in which I internalize white supremacy, the way I internalize policing of the black body. So I write about that. You know, I police my black body in spaces where no one is apparently policing it. Right. I cross the street to make people more comfortable. I've done that all my life. My sons do that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's less comfortable, but it's safer, right? Because we don't want to be one of those statistics. And it's impossible to be a black man of a certain age and not have had that experience. You know, it's really hard to find a black man who hasn't had a, a horrible experience with police or with uh, a white citizen uh, implicating them in something in which they, they weren't involved. Uh, so, uh, and I call that uh, discreet citizenship, right? I try to lead a life because I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be visible. I don't even want to be acknowledged. I actually want to be left alone, right? I mean, it's a very humble ambition. I just want to be able to shop, travel, commute, whatever my situation is. Um, And I think part of the discourse, the vitriolic discourse, I think we've allowed it, and by we, I mean progressive people, uh, we've allowed it to go too far, uh, and we haven't challenged it. So that first quote I I read uh, about, you know, we need to speak out, uh, is, 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 is of, it's of critical importance. But part of it, one reason we don't speak out, and I, you know, I include myself in this, is because you know Martin Luther King talked about choosing comfort over justice, right? And on many days, I choose comfort. And on those days, I'm silent, perhaps when I shouldn't be, right? So I implicate myself in that. Um, and I think this is very much a moment in which we cannot be silent because so much is at stake. On the other hand, I would argue that in terms of African-American experience, there has never been a time when everything was not at stake, right? So um, so I, I think, uh, and I think we have to acknowledge that. I was, um, I was in a space with a white liberal progressive woman and she was speaking to another white liberal progressive woman. And I was in the space, uh, it, was a, it was a group of people, but I was the only black person. And she said to the other white, I'm so upset. She said, this is the worst time ever in the history of our country. It's never been this bad. And I kind of looked there and said, really? It's never, it's never been this bad before? I didn't know that, right? You know, so, um, so it's, it's, it's also a time in which um, I think that, you know, in terms of actual liberation for black people, for brown people, for indigenous people, uh, for oppressed people, trans people, non-binary people, et cetera, um, everything is at stake 
for us. And part of it, um, I write about in the book, I write about Newt Gingrich's go pack strategy of several years ago in which he sent all conservative candidates a list of words and said, use all of these words because this is war, right? And, and so I argue that we need to look at our struggle for full equality in similarly stark terms, not just at the ballot box, but in general. So when we talk about the difficult conversation, the need to have the difficult conversation, well, you know, we say, well, if we could just, uh, if, if progressive white people and people of color could just begin to have these conversations. Well, I want to be a little contrarian there and say that, uh, at least in terms of African Americans, we've actually been having that conversation since 1619. And if we're, we're going to have difficult conversations now, it, they actually need to be between our white progressive allies and their racist cousins. That's really where the conversation needs to go because they're the 53% of white women who voted for Trump, for example. Mm -hmm. right? so. Well, your last essay really gets into talking about those silences, which are deadly. Yes. So uh, when you look at the silence and when you look at the, the, the uh, explicit racism clashing into each other, so you have the explicit right. racism right. and then you have the silence next to it, what an ingredient for not moving forward at all. With the cooperation of the media under an ostensible neutrality, their, their reluctance to call racists racists and to instead call them the alt-right and white nationalists, which is, you know, is a mistake and, and very much, uh, and, you know, it works against us. It counters the narrative that we, that we actually need to present. So you also talk about how we have, um, and when I say we, African-Americans, have um, not really taken a look at our own selves and our own discussions with each other. I, I thought that was an interesting perspective that you yeah. had about we need to be talking with each other as well. Right. I think we need to have a discussion about morality uh, because we're, we're getting, a, uh, there are black people who are um, leading a moral movement right now, sort of like in the vein of Martin Luther King. They're talking about moral suasion and changing consciences. Um, I don't think that that's politically useful. And I, and I don't think that by and large over 400 years that has swayed the consciences of those who would oppress us. There are notable exceptions, and we should laud those exceptions. But by and large, I don't believe that's happened. I think that's a, a major miscalculation uh, to make it an argument or to make it a, a struggle about moral suasion, about changing consciences. I don't think uh, that is politically useful. But the, the conversation I was talking about having within our communities is that some of these people who are leading these, uh, these moral advocacy movements are representatives, say, of African-American churches that are socially very conservative. And they think that, say, queer people are abominations who are going to hell, right? They think they're immoral. What about those of us who don't agree? Right. So we don't even have a moral consensus. So you've kind of got that sort of old school type leadership. But then when you look at the, the movement for black lives, the leadership is overwhelmingly queer. It's overwhelmingly female, self-identifying females. You have to reconcile that with this this moral argument that we, you know, we have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. What are you what are you calling moral? Right. And who gets to define that, really? So I had a question that was posed to me. I had a conversation about your book, and the question is, what narratives haven't you delved into yet? Which ones have not been exposed? Uh, they're, they're, I don't know. That's a, that's a hard question. There's so many, uh, but I, I think that you know, my, my, my job as an, as an essayist, and I think my job as an essayist is different from my, my job as a fiction writer when I'm, when I'm uh, writing a novel, for example, even though there is overlap. Um, my job as, a, as an essayist is, uh, and I, I borrow from Chinua Achebe, you know, writers don't give prescriptions, they give headaches, right? So my job is to talk about the headaches. And I think that, you know, in terms of policy strategy, legislative strategy, I'm on shaky ground uh, when I make proposals there because there are people far more qualified. Uh, but as a writer, I can pay attention and be astonished. And that's my job. Yeah. So what are you reading? What am I reading? I, I most, I'm mostly reading, um, I guess, uh, collections of essays. I just picked up a collection of essays by uh, George Shalaba, whose name is really impossible to pronounce. That's uh, S-C-S-C-I-A-B-A. -S -C -S -C 
I-A-B-B-A-L-A, I think, uh, whom I've met before. And he's a really unusual uh, sort of public intellectual who's based in Cambridge and uh, often investigates the relationship between culture, money, power, and the state, which is what I try to do. Uh, in all of my essays, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a cultural evangelist. I believe in the transformative power of culture, but I always want to investigate its connection to the state, right, and, rela- and relationship between power. Uh, I continually uh, return to Ralph Ellison. Uh, I love this collection, Harlem is Nowhere by Sharifa Pitts Rhodes. I think it's a terrific collection. Um, the Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, I'm reading right now. Uh, so a lot of different stuff. I have a a messy pile. Mm. You read two day. and three books at the same time? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And so what would you like to see with um, your writing? Where do you want to go? I want to be read. <laughs> <laughs> so I always tell my students, I write to be read. You know, mm. I, Which, I, Who's your audience? Uh, anybody who's remotely interested. I think, you know, um, the lesson I, I, again, my students, the example I give is Jim Harrison, uh, who's a white novelist, poet, essayist who, who did it all. He died a couple years ago. I think he was in his seventies. Uh, the example I give is that when I was in college, a very pretentious literary young man, pretentious literary young men read Esquire magazine. Right. And we made sure that pretentious literary young women saw us reading it. Right. So it's latest Esquire. So, um, when I got Esquire, which was full of good writing at the time, there was a column in it called The Raw and the Cooked by Jim Harrison. And it was the first thing I read, every issue. And in that column, he and his wife would go out, hunt an animal, field dress it, and cook it, and eat it, and invite friends over. And they'd have banter back and forth while they did it. I've been, I've been a vegetarian for 35 years. I've never been hunting. I've never handled a gun. I have no interest in any of those things. And I read him first because I was so captivated by his writing, right? So I tell my students, you know, they're probably, I'm thinking of three kinds of readers when I write, and one of them is exactly like me, who's completely interested in everything I'm interested in, finds whatever I find fascinating, fascinating. Then there's another kind of uh, reader who may be interested in, in what I'm doing, but likes good writing and may be drawn to my writing. And the third reader is indifferent or possibly even hostile to what I have to say. And if I write well enough, I can even get some of those readers. And Jim Harrison is my example because I read him loyally and I've got no interest in hunting and slaughtering animals whatsoever. But I would read him willingly because I just wanted to see what he would do with the language, you know, every every column that he wrote. So, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, in your um, your interest in writing children's books. Because I have three grandchildren, and I want to take some of your books and have them sit down and read it. And so, what do you think of when you're reading, when you're writing for children? What images come to you, and what do you want them to to feel as they're sitting with a book in in their hands, or a tablet, yeah, or whatever yeah. they're they're it, using? It's similar to when I write uh, fiction for adults. I want them first to be entertained. Right. And if there's any kind of lesson in there, I'm sneaking it in. I don't want it to be too overt. Uh, Again, it comes from my experience. My wife and I have five children. We have two grandchildren. And my earliest children's books came out of attempts to entertain my own children and get them to lay down and go to bed. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, some some became favorites. And then, you know, I looked at my wife and she looked at me and said, these should be books. Right. And so it kind of comes out of that. So I'm still kind of even though they're grown now, I'm still kind of writing with that kind of, of child in mind. Uh, so first of all, I want them. To, I want them to be entertained. If they if they get some, you know. So I wrote a story uh, called Fifty Cents in a Dream, which is about uh, Booker T. Washington's five hundred mile walk uh, to um, to uh, where where did he walk to? Help me out to Hampton to go to college, Hampton Institute. Um, and so it's it's an informative story, but it's an entertain. I'm I'm trying to tell it in an entertaining way, so that that part is all, is almost slid in, you kind of slipped in. Um, Is there a part in the book that you'd like to leave us with before we transition? Uh, I wasn't prepared for that, but I have an (laughs) idea. Let's see. I'll just read uh, the last couple paragraphs of the book. If we're looking for reasons for optimism, 
We can find it knowing that our opponents, despite centuries of concentrated, systematic effort, have failed to completely destroy our minds, our capacity to reason for ourselves. We can find it in our ability to have strong, smart, healthy children, despite equally intense efforts to poison, incarcerate, murder, and otherwise inflict them with fatal discouragement. I need no reasons beyond those to motivate my striving. In the struggle for justice, Douglas observed, the only reward is to be in the struggle. I don't believe that love can conquer injustice. Strategy, however, has a fighting chance. So you close. Cheerful note. Yeah, you close, <laughs> you close with that. Can yeah. can you just talk a little bit more about that closing statement? Uh, I mean, I, it, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the compulsion to forgive. Um, um, and it comes from two places. I mean, the first question the media asks a, a black person or a Jewish person. I mean, all, all of the discourse around the synagogue uh, massacre, a lot of it's been around forgiveness. Right. Uh, so I've, I find that particularly fascinating. The media, the uh, the nine year old black boy who was accused of sexual assault in New York a couple of weeks ago because his backpack brushed the rear end of a white woman who was in front of him. She called the police and said, I have just been sexually assaulted by a child. That was her report. And the boy was traumatized. He cried. He thought he was going to jail. First thing the media asked him was, do you forgive this woman? Because once the video was rolled and it was shown that she was lying, um, you know, so there was a whole bunch of discussion and argument about that. So I think forgiveness is can be politically expedient. I get that. But I also ask the question, what is it about the oppressed that makes them feel immediately that they have to say they forgive? Charleston, that's what happened. Uh, the synagogue slaughter, that's what happened. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my view of love and forgiveness is I, I very much believe in love. I love love, I love to be loved, and I love to give love. But the best kind of love is requited love. And I don't want to waste all my love on people who don't love me. I don't see the value of that. So I'm not talking about our allies. I'm talking about our oppressors. And I think it's important to, to make that distinction. But I also ask the question, if we're continually encouraging black people uh, to love their oppressors, and to find the potential for love in those oppressors. How is that different from telling a battered person that their partner will eventually come around and love them if they would just be patient and forgiving? It's, a, it's an abusive relationship, and we need to call it what it is. Right. And the oppressors never asked to forgive. Right. Right. I've never ha- have heard someone say, are you sorry for the hatred right. that you're spewing? Right. Right. Um, why, why is Carolyn Bryant allowed to live a peaceful life today? <laughs> Ooh, we can go on. <laughs> Those are good questions. Yeah. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for continuously writing and strutting. <laughs> Such as it is. <laughs> Such as it is. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Let's thank give you. Jabari a hand. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.